0: Nathaniel, so you spent two years deeply reporting on this story, over a hundred sources, you took over an entire issue of the New York Times Magazine, and then Apple buys the rights for a television series. Did you expect that?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> um, I didn't expect anything in particular, but the, the, the story has received an enormous reaction, and so that's, that's been very
0: gratifying and exciting. Catherine, are you going to be watching on Apple?
2: Of course. uh, Apple owns my soul, uh, so I will be watching everything on Apple. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Coming up, we talk with Nathaniel Rich, author of Losing Earth, a piece of climate history that took over the New York Times magazine earlier this month. First, though, a thanks to Mission Solar for bringing you this show. We're talking about an important time in modern history this week, 1979 to 1989. And that turns out to be a time when the modern solar industry was born in America. Mission Solar is keeping that history alive. Mission Solar makes high-quality, high-power solar modules right in Texas, giving you the best-performing products with the durability that only Texans can ensure. Find out more about Mission's line of solar modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, we are devoting an entire episode to an ambitious piece of reporting on climate change. Earlier this month, the New York Times Magazine devoted an entire issue, tens of thousands of words, to a specific period of time in modern history, 1979 to 1989. It was a time when we first reckoned with the impact of climate change, a period of great awakening in science, politics, and industry to the threat of greenhouse gases. But as we're all painfully aware of at this point, that awakening didn't turn into action, and the piece weaves together a narrative to help explain why. Why, when we had a chance to do something at a moment when everyone seemed to be on the same page about the threat, did we fail? So, Catherine, you were uh, sitting there in your Adirondack chair in your cabin in the mountains on vacation, reading this massive tome on our failure to act on climate change. How'd that make you feel on vacation?
2: I was actually really glad I was in the nice, cool Adirondacks and not back in the swamp where I am now, which it's like soup outside because it probably would have made me super depressed to read it then, but it was a great read.
0: That's Catherine Hamilton, by the way, she's the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Washington, DC. So apparently Jigger just couldn't handle it. You know, it's his birthday. Happy birthday, Jigger! And he's off traveling this week. Um, but many of us, I think, fell into a kind of uh, morose reflection when reading this piece. and um, We want to know, what was it like reporting on this piece for two years? So let's ask Nathaniel Rich. He's the author of Losing Earth. He's got three novels under his belt. He's written a bunch of essays on literature, published nonfiction, reported pieces for Harper's and Rolling Stone, and written some fiction. Nathaniel joins us today from New Orleans. Hey there. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So at a time when mainstream outlets are criticized for not devoting enough time or ink to climate change, here comes the New York Times Magazine with more than 30,000 words uh, for a historical piece of all kinds of pieces. How did this piece come about?
1: Through a partnership with the Pulitzer Center. It's the second iteration of this partnership. The first was a piece called Fractured Lands about the Middle East, published a couple of years ago, um, which also took over the entire issue of, of the New York Times Magazine. And my editors um, came to me with the idea of doing a, a long full issue piece about climate change and asked if I wanted to to write it. And I said yes, and uh, we we set about trying to figure out a way to write about the subject um, that, that wouldn't kind of repeat the, the tropes and conventions that you tend to see playing out in most writing about it.
0: What are those tropes and conventions?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, and, and as a warning, I'm going to generalize. Um, so certainly there are exceptions, but, but the basic kind of writing I think one sees now about climate change is that it sort of has several components. It's usually, uh, this is a huge problem, as you can see from, you know, X current event, whether it's the fires or drought or flooding or, or what have you. Um, there, it's getting late <clears throat> if we don't do anything Soon, it's going to get much, much worse. Here's some science to explain that. Um, these are the forces working against us, or the institutions, usually oil and gas industry and the Republican Party, um, well funded by the industry. Um, and and yet, the, if we do something, um, we'll have a chance, with, and that might be join Paris Accord or vote for you know, democratic socialists or, or what have you um, join a protest and so on. And all of that, I think, is valid and true. Uh, I don't really take issue with any of that. Um, but I also feel like it's a very, um, it doesn't quite cover the whole the whole thing. And so I felt that by going back in time to an earlier historical period before this kind of paralysis has taken hold, both in the politics and to some extent in the rhetoric, uh, that we would be, it would, it would allow a way to broaden the conversation a bit.
0: I want to talk about the framing of the piece, the why of the piece, and th- some of those conventions a little bit more in the second half of the show when we talk about some of the criticisms and the framing um, of the actual piece itself. Um, so let, let's talk about first this era, why 1979 to 1989. You said it was a time. When we were moving toward action until we weren't. Uh, So it was a unique point in time when there was a lot of alignment among a lot of the players in activism and in industry and in politics. Why is this era so special?
1: So by 1979, the fundamental science um, of climate change is established. Uh, There's scientific consensus on the main points. Really, the the big picture hasn't changed since then. Um, There's been greater refinement of course and and more data and so on um but but the basic science is established and the conversation at at the highest levels of um government in 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 washington starts to turn to policy and ways of of solving the issue um the problem of, of global warming and you have an effort that begins um First with a, out of a sort of a handful of, of, of people, activists, um, political insiders, scientists, to move the issue to uh, national policy and ultimately to international policy. And there's a a, a, a progression. it's sort of uh, with some ups and downs along the way, but but uh, towards by the end of the decade, um, what seems to be a viable solution, which is a global a binding global treaty to reduce emissions. And only at the very end of the decade does the U.S. drop out of that, that framework. Um, but yeah, and during the period, it's not a partisan issue. Um, there are prominent Republicans uh, in sort of full-throated support of this process. Um, industry, though aware of the issue, uh, is not, has not coordinated an attack on you know, science, on scientific fact, has not started to pay off. Um, scientists or, or politicians, um, and is, is, is engaged uh, relatively, at, especially at the beginning of the period, in trying to understand um, the ramifications of the issue and, and what what will need to be done uh, to address it. And so there's an opening. Um, and, and we come very close to signing on to that framework. And, um, and then it doesn't, it falls apart. And so I wanted to try to understand um, why and, and to understand the dynamics of of um, what was going on politically and scientifically and and sort of in the activist community during this period, when it seems at least in retrospect have been wide open.
2: So Nathaniel, that period of time, uh, 1979, 1989, I was still uh, in short pants in college watching the no, going to the no nukes movie um, and not completely aware of this. But my understanding is, and from your article in that time frame, a lot of the mainstream environmental groups were really focused on other issues. They were fo- focused on Clean Water Act and toxic waste and auto emission standards, and climate change just hadn't kind of risen to the level um, of action and and specific action that needed to be taken. Um, for something to really occur on a policy level. So I just would love to hear a little bit more about the players in this and who really, who were the folks who were really trying to move this to the forefront and internalize it into our politics and policy.
1: Yeah, that's accurate. I, there, you know, I spoke to the people who were in charge of, you know, NRDC during this period and other, other major environmental groups. And they all say the same thing that this was not, a focus in the 80s, and really, the only environmental activist who who dedicated himself fully to the issue is Rave pomerantz who's one of the main characters in the in the piece. Um, and I think it was frustrating to him that no one else in this environmental community uh, joined him uh, or understood the stakes, or at least could be made to act. Um, the model for the for the, for environmental activism. Um, had been well established, you know, in the 70s during this, this this flowering of the environmental movement, and it was very much based on um, specific sites of contamination or pollution. Um, so, you know, and you have Superfund uh, coming along during this period as well. And so the whole the whole way that activists thought about environmental problems. Um, wasn't really conducive to the, to the climate problem. And that's, that's something I write about a bit in the piece. Um, You know, how do you, how do you react when the, the area of contamination is not, you know, a single reservoir um, or industrial site, but the entire global atmosphere It's a very different kind of problem. Um, And so, yeah, you have Rafe Pomerantz, who's trying to, trying to get people's attention. You have James Hansen, a NASA scientist who's, Comes to really national or international prominence by the end of the decade, but even in the early eighties, is starting to um, give these warnings before Congress about uh, the dangers of, of global warming and the need for policy action. It's a very unusual um, argument to make as as a government scientist in that period, and and invited some um, anger or contempt from from other scientists even. Uh, and then you have, you have people within um, the halls of Congress. So there are a couple of, of congressmen. I mean, we think of Al Gore later in the decade, uh, Tim Worth, um, but there are also some, some representatives during that period. Um, and then a lot of staffers, sort of the, the, the people who kind of make the trains run uh, on time uh, in Congress. So the people who, who organize hearings, who coordinate policy, who write speeches. Um, there's a group of young people during that time who worked very closely with Hansen and Pomerance and others to try to move the issue. And then uh, you also have people within the intelligence community and 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 one of those is uh, chief um, among those is Gordon McDonald, very prominent uh, preeminent uh, scientist, government scientist who uh, joined up with Rafe Pomerance uh, early on in the decade to, try to sound the alarm, and, and they had a series of meetings with with people at, at the highest levels of of the government, including uh, Jimmy Carter's science advisor.
0: So you start the story off with a pretty powerful moment. Rafe Pomerance is reading some obscure report, um, and all of a sudden, he stumbles upon this reference in a technical report on coal, and it was a reference to climate change, on atmospheric changes. What did he actually see?
1: Yeah, he saw as a kind of throwaway line at the end of a chapter 60 pages into this obscure coal report uh, reference to the fact that that uh, increased um, use of fossil fuels and and putting more and more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um, would over time lead to major damaging um, consequences for life on Earth, and he could not believe he literally couldn't believe this because he figured that if anyone should know about <laughs> such an existential threat, it, that it would be him. He's you know he was an expert on air quality issues, and he'd been working for much of the '70s to um, to write the amendments for the, the Clean Air Act, and so uh, this baffled him, and he basically just sort of put it aside. Um, showed it to a colleague who also hadn't heard about this and, and put it to the side. But then a couple days later, um, he came across an article about Gordon McDonald who at the same time uh, was trying to um, raise attention uh, to, to direct attention to this issue. Um, and, uh, and so then um, Pomerantz called up McDonald and asked, asked to meet and, and that began the story of their, this sort of strange traveling roadshow where they the two of them would go um, all around Capitol Hill to try to essentially warn everyone of the coming disaster and, and urge the government to act.
2: So one of the parts of this narrative that I think is really telling as we think about what's happening today and what has happened from that time to today is Is that throughout there isn't something very specific that these people can tell policymakers to act on? So one of the examples that you give is the ozone hole. That you know, there's there's this gaping wound in the sky. What do we do about it? We ban CFC refrigerants, so we we shut down that piece of the industry, there was one thing you could do that could really help it and solve it. And we did it. And this is such a more amorphous issue that requires so many different types of solutions. And it seemed like that was part of the big issue about why it couldn't get over the finish line is because there wasn't one specific thing that they could ask people to do.
0: Right. And contrast that with the the ozone hole. You know, the, the use of the term hole, as you describe, um, evolved over time. I think someone mentioned it in a press conference. Journalists ran with it. And that became a really powerful image. And then when you had these models showing the big purple hole in the ozone layer, even though it wasn't technically a hole, it seemed like this massive, urgent existential threat that was very different from something like climate change, as Catherine described.
1: Yeah, it's hard to generalize about the entire... Decade because the strategies evolved over that period, but but certainly the ozone hole uh, crisis, the public outcry, um, was a catalytic moment in the conversation about global warming because it offered for the first time a viable um, uh, solution, which was a global environmental treaty to reduce emissions of you know CFCs in the case of of ozone. Um, but immediately, the, the talk turned within the global warming community to uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And and it, but even at the early the beginning of the decade, I mean, Rafe Pomerantz and, and others are talking about the need for increased investment in renewable energy, um, the, the need to move away from coal. Um, Gordon McDonald's talking about that in 1979 and earlier. Uh, And uh, the implementation of a carbon tax is also part of the conversation um, as a way of of, of helping to accelerate that process. You know, in starting in the late '70s. So, you know, really, I mean, I would go further and say basically every every solution that that is now proposed today in 2018 um, was being proposed in 1980, uh, and which includes you know decarbonization includes sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, geoengineering, um, you know, nuclear energy, uh, ramping up nuclear energy, and all, every, the whole suite of things that we're still talking about today is, was all on the table then. Um, but yeah, the significant turning point was the idea of a global, binding global treaty to reduce emissions. And, and once that uh, once, once that was the Montreal Protocol was signed, even people at the highest levels of the Reagan administration were saying that global warming, you know, carbon dioxide treaty was next.
0: But to get to that point, the this roadshow, so to speak, really had to touch on powerful stories. It had to have heroes. It had to have villains. It had to find a way to make climate change real for people, and. Um, you know, Pomerantz tried that in many ways, and then ultimately Al Gore and Jim Hansen realized the the same thing. You know, historically, you'd had scientists who were just terrible at describing the threats, and and then in some of these reports, when they identified the threats, um, when they were talking to reporters in press conferences or on Capitol Hill, they would be very careful about you know talking about the threat of climate change, when in fact, in reports, they talked about you know, pretty imminent multi-decade threats. So there's this really important element to the history that you outline in the piece, which is the formation of stories, the, the formation of this new kind of Science communication, where scientists like Jim Hansen were a lot more bold in the way they talk about the threats of climate change, and of course, in the thirty years since his famous 1988 hearing, Jim Hansen has written books, um, has become a major advocate for nuclear and renewable energy, has basically stood up on the rooftops and shouted as loud as we can that we are in, you know, the the gravest crisis that you can imagine. And other climate scientists have followed people like Heidi Cullen and, you know, Jacqueline Gill and Kevin Trenberth and Michael Mann. And there's there's a ton of climate scientists out there who have Jason Box is another interesting one who basically said, okay the science isn't enough. It's not enough that we can explain this stuff through data. We have to talk about we have to tell stories and maybe even make policy prescriptions in some cases. So th- talk about the origins of that movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was going on throughout the 80s. The, none of that is, is really new. Um, you know, you have James Hansen in 1981 um, in, a, in a major science paper that was received coverage on the front page of the of the New York Times, for instance, um, prescribing uh, policy, energy policy, saying that we need to start phasing out use of coal. Uh, Gordon MacDonald was saying the same things. There were hearings. But they were rare, weren't the they? At uh yes. So it was somewhat yeah, it was somewhat novel at the time. It, it was certainly novel at the time for scientists to um to call for policy change. And it was dramatic and 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 I think it it made things difficult professionally for for people like Hansen who were doing that. Um as it probably still does to this day, um, for scientists who who sort of go out on a limb and, and move the conversation. But I think it's probably more Acceptable now than than then, but um, yeah, I mean, you see that you see the the beginning of of another kind of approach, which is to link um, current disaster, weather disasters, to climate change as a as a way, as kind of a marketing technique. Um, you see that beginning in 1988, um, particularly with Hansen's testimony before Congress. Or, you know, he had joked to Rafe Pomerance before that hearing that you know, this business of having hearings during cold weather months was no good. Um, that we you had to have hearings in the middle of the the summer. Actually, it's it it's, it was he wasn't even joking. I that was something I remember having to change in fact checking. He said, No, that wasn't even a joke. I was that was <laughs> serious. Um, and so there was this idea that uh in '88, which was the, the hottest summer, uh you know, in recorded history at the time with, with all kinds of um, horrific fires and drought um, that combining that with the, with the observation that he made famously that, that global warming is here now we're feeling the effects now um, created a kind of press firestorm, uh, no pun intended. And, and so it, it worked to some extent then. And, and I think that that continues to work, to some extent, to this day, I mean, you see it essentially every summer now, or anytime there's there's hurricanes, and and now the science of attribution is better so that you can actually say more um, emphatically that that this particular wildfire, this particular storm um, has been abetted in some way by a warming planet. So I think that kind of approach, it it will only continue to evolve. But I, I also wonder whether that is sufficient from if if you talk about if you're talking about this sort of cynically or, or or perhaps not cynically from purely um if your mission is to get out the word you know about climate change um is that the best is that the most effective approach um i don't i don't know i mean it strikes me as somewhat um basically what you're doing is you're appealing to the immediate self interest of of people so the idea is essentially well, if the fire is burning at your door now, will you take action? You know, and I feel like like although there's something that's effect, that is effective and some, to some degree, um, I wonder if if a, appealing to one's narrow self interest, um, you know, seems to be the way that we got here, and I wonder if that's really the, the best way to get us out of it. And and for the amount of change required, the transformation in uh, the the energy system and, and really the global economy that's required to to deal with this, I don't know that that narrow of an appeal is sufficient.
2: Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, and I think actually people don't make decisions in their own self interest all the time. Um, yeah,
1: well, look at our politics. I mean, when you know I, that doesn't seem to have really worked so far with in any other issues, economic or or what
2: have you. Right. And so one of the things I did want to dive into a little bit was the politics of this. Um, I spent some time talking to Carl Pope, who used to run the Sierra Club, and he kind of walked me through some of the political dynamics of the time based on some of the issues he was working on then. And you talked about John Chafee, a Republican from Rhode Island, who was very interested in moving forward on climate change policy. And you know, in 1974 and certainly by 1980 with the Sagebrush Rebellion where Westerners were saying, we don't want the federal government to take over our lands, a lot of the Eastern Republicans were really getting iced out of the of the key committees, the decision-making committees. And folks like Bennett Johnston, who is a Democrat from Louisiana, who headed up bo- both appropriations and Senate Energy Committee from Louisiana, was moving forward on oil and gas it didn't seem to matter at some point whether you were a Republican or a Democrat. It mattered where you were from, and Carl ca- called this commodity conservatism, where you think about what are the region, what is the regional interest that you have, and that's how you're going to end up voting. And that's been true for decades. Where if you are from a state that's very you know heavily based on extractive industry that's the industry that you're going to support no matter what party you're with so I just wonder from the political standpoint I'd love for you to walk us through a little bit of what you were seeing in your when you were doing your research for this piece
1: yeah well Bennett Johnston's an interesting a, a good example because um, it was Bennett Johnston who in 1987 eighty87 uh, started to put on these major uh, global warming hearings in his in his committee um and he put on one in 87 where hansen tes- testified which is discussed in the piece a bit and, and johnston um put it on at the urging of Rafe pomerantz who met with him um, ahead of ahead of that and helped to organize that hearing and johnston once it was sort of underway uh turned it over basically to tim tim worth uh, senator from from colorado a democrat who was um just saw the issue as something to champion um politically and and basically took the mantle from al gore who at that time had had sort of started stop talking about the issue that much as much because he was beginning his run for for president um and it, it wasn't a very sexy uh issue to make his name on in that campaign and uh and then it was in Johnston's committee again the next year that, that Hanson gave his famous testimony. Um, so I think there's something to that, uh, that, that division. I mean, certainly, you know, you can't have a, more of an oil and gas senator than, than Johnston uh, in that period. Um, but it's, it's a bit hard to, to generalize again. Uh, certainly, there are lots of Republicans who were extremely hostile to any, any kind of policy that might be seen as environmentalist. Um, and the Reagan administration, as a whole, was extraordinarily hostile um, to environmental policy, especially at the outset. On the other hand, um, you do have the Reagan administration um, pushing ultimately to pass the Montreal Protocol, the ozone agreement, um, especially after DuPont comes around on that question, and which is to this day probably the most effective global climate policy or the only global climate policy that we have.
0: DuPont came around because they realized that they could make money off of the problem.
1: (laughs) Yes, they could profit. They were by far the biggest manufacturer um, of CFCs, and they realized that they could profit from it. You know, and then you have the head of of, uh, Reagan's EPA after signing the Montreal Protocol saying we're going to do climate change next. Um so it's it's you know, there are there are various forces. It's a lot harder to generalize about this period than it is today, where it's so um black and white, uh where you have the Republican Party adopting as its line essentially a position of climate denialism, which goes even beyond the public posture of of most oil and gas companies. Um and so it's it it's I think, looking back, it's important not to fall into sort of the patterns that exist now. The Republican and Democratic Party were both very different then. Um, Industry's involvement was different. Uh, The environmental movement was very different. Um, And so that I I tried in the piece to, to explain some of those differences and as well as some of the similarities.
0: Coming up, we're going to talk about the meaning of Nathaniel's piece and some of the criticisms. First, though, let's talk about Mission Solar. Man, things have changed a lot since the 70s and 80s. Today we have hundreds of thousands of workers in America's solar industry, and we're doing things with renewable energy that were almost unimaginable back then. Mission Solar is proud to be at the forefront of America's solar transition. The company has an R&D lab and module production facility in San Antonio, Texas, creating high-quality jobs for high-quality solar panels. Mission Solar's panels beat international performance standards by three times, and the company has a new 310-watt module coming out toward the end of the year. To learn more about Mission Solar modules, go to missionsolar.com slash products. That's missionsolar.com slash products. So we've got a couple protagonists, and we do ultimately come to a villain, depending on how you look at. Uh, The story, but that that person is John Sununu. He's a former New Hampshire governor, my home state. Uh, He was chief of staff to George H. W. Bush, and you had this time when activists and industry and Republican members of Congress and even George H. W. Bush himself uh, thought, you know, that that a global treaty was reasonable on climate change. They were really, they they believed, George H.W. Bush himself believed that it was a really important campaign message. He he actually latched on to climate change, believing that it would set him apart as a candidate. And then John Sununu comes in and uh, convinces him, or basically like puts enough doubt into the president's mind that he shoves it off of his desk and ultimately leads to the United States uh, kind of walking away from any firm global treaty. Uh, What role did Sununu play in this? And and it sounds like a lot of the details that you reported on were new. Like this was really newly reported stuff.
1: Yeah. uh, Sununu I interviewed as well as William Riley, who is the head of uh, Bush's EPA and also a spokesman for uh, Jim Baker, the Secretary of State, who in his first speech – gave uh, enthusiastic endorsement um, in front of the IPCC working group that was working on a framework for a treaty and, and endorsed the idea of, of, the, of a binding treaty. Um, I think, I mean, when you get into the beliefs of George Bush, it gets a little murky because I'm not sure how much he believed anything about the issue. I think, I think he did see it on the campaign as um, a political winner, it was in the middle of that summer of 1988. It was front page news. And he ran to the left of Dukakis, essentially, on climate and environmental issues. Um, whether he even understood the science um, at, a, at, a, at a fundamental level, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think he was happy to defer to his advisors. And and the problem with that was that uh, one of his top advisors, William Riley, was fully supportive of an agreement and Baker was as well. And, and John Sununu, his chief of staff was, was, was very strongly against it was extraordinarily skeptical of the science. He was a PhD in mechanical engineering. And, um, though he hadn't had much uh, familiarity with the issue before he got into the white house, he kind of brushed up and decided it was all uh, poppycock, I think is one of the words he used. And, um, and he ultimately won a political battle within the White House, um, and which resulted in in the administration, after a bit of a public, publicly visible tug of war, in which it, its position kind of changed over the course of a year, back and forth. Ultimately, um, refused to participate in in any kind of uh, binding um, treaty, and and we really we haven't gotten. Very close to to that kind of a solution since, um, and then shortly after the politics changed quite radically uh, and decisively. But uh, yeah, and then I think the question is whether why was it? Why did it take a single chief of staff to um, to ruin this whole process? <laughs> why, why was that enough? Um, I think part of the answer is that is yes, Bush. I don't think Bush was really had. A very strong sense of the issue, or a strong commitment to it, uh, deep down. Um, but also, you know, I think there are larger forces at work that the, the that the argument was for for uh, policy was uh, strong, but it wasn't deep. It didn't quite have the depth uh, that you would need to to force to force at home. Uh, and certainly not not anything like what the ozone issue had by by recent comparison.
0: So. I know that there was some criticism of the piece, mostly just that you happened to focus on a couple of different people and that you weren't hard enough on Republicans or industry. In my opinion, a lot of those hot takes and pieces about your article are the kind of pieces that we just see regularly after any kind of mainstream um, publication covers the issue. Um, I, I found the narrative like really powerful because it took me to a place, uh, you know, viscerally that a lot of people try to get you to when they say, oh, think about what our kids are going to say to us a generation from now or two generations from now. You knew about this problem, but you didn't do anything about it. Well, guess what? We've, We've seen that happen a couple of times already. And when you get to the end of the piece, you can't help but feel that way. Like, oh, we've known about this problem for a long time, and we didn't get our act together, and I think that's just powerful in and of itself. That you don't you don't need a call for action. You don't need to write it with an activist voice. Just the narrative, the storytelling, gets you to a pretty deep place. And so that's where I found myself after reading it.
1: Thanks, I, I appreciate that, and and I feel you know, and I'm happy to I'm happy to respond to any any criticism um, on its on its merits. I haven't seen anything. Yeah, as you suggest, the brunt of the criticism seems to be why didn't you write a piece about basically the 1990s and afterwards when industry um, embraced this kind of cart- cartoonish level of, of, of uh, villainy that, it, that it's adopted ever since and the Republican Party as well. Um, and I tried to find examples of that same kind of coordinated effort by the Republican Party and, and industry during this period. Um, and I just couldn't find any and no one else has found it either. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, it would have been a lot easier to write if, if that was going on during this period, but it wasn't. And the fact that it, that there wasn't a really strong coordinated effort, um, makes I think the failure that much more haunting, um, and, and alarming and, uh, and so I think that the, that, that's, that's sort of, if the piece where the piece probably gets any power that it has is from that, uh, awareness. Um, and I, and yes, our failure to reckon with, with all of this and in, in, in any kind of deep way.
2: Um. Yeah. So Nathaniel, my husband and I both read this article at the same time, although on different laptops, uh, in our cabin in the Adirondacks, and we're looking across the lake at this mountain that is just always our touchstone there. And he said, you know, this reminds me, reading this article reminds me of when I was a kid and I went to hike that mountain and I hiked and hiked and hiked with my family. And I thought we were at the top, I could see the ridge and I could see the sky and I got there, and I realized we were—we had only gotten to the first foothill of scaling the mountain, and we had so many more to go. And we were talking about this and realizing that that's kind of how we are. That's kind of what the what that decade was, and that's kind of where we are today. Is that you know we 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 think we're at a place, and we just have to keep going because the it's it's a big mountain.
1: I I have that experience every time I've hiked a mountain, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the tragedy is. Because, it, it, but it, in this example, it's like we've barely even reached the first foothill um, with this issue. And I think, I think one thing that's lost in in the way we talk about this issue generally is is the level of transformation that is required. Which is to not not to say it's not that it's impossible. It's possible. Um, they're very concrete plans out there. Jim Hansen has one for how to, how to, you know, stop warming, uh, keep warming at less than two degrees Celsius. Um, it's also not to suggest that it's not economically on whole, um, would be beneficial. There are all kinds of studies showing that a transition to a renewable energy economy, um, would in the long run be hugely beneficial economically on economic terms. Um, but the level of, of political will required to, initiate that process in a, in a substantial way um, is really lacking. And, and I guess political will in that sense is really a, a human will. Um, and and so the question is, I think we'll get there eventually. We'll have to get there eventually because of the level of devastation that's coming. And the question is, do we get there because we're in so much hurt <laughs> that we have no choice you know, some decades from now? Or do we get there because... Um, at, we're able to articulate a, a much more powerful argument for action as we have with other major sort of watershed social issues uh, in in history. And I don't, you know, pe- some people have said you know the piece is extremely pessimistic. I don't I don't really see it in those is optimistic or pessimistic. I think um, my hope is that by understanding, the full uh, not only the nature of the problem but our our own the nature of our own limitations um, personal uh, social political um, will we, we really be able to grapple with this in a in a serious way um, at the level required to um, initiate major transformation in, in our world because transformations come in one way or the other the only question is uh, how involved are we going to be in it
0: Nathaniel Rich is the author of Losing Earth. You can find that in our show notes. You can also just find it by Googling Losing Earth and checking out the New York Times. He uh, is a novelist, an essayist, has written a bunch of nonfiction stuff, and his latest is Losing Earth. Nathaniel, thanks a lot for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, well, let's wrap up the show and uh, give our free electrons. So Jigger's not here. That means Catherine, who usually gives her usual two or three, probably has like five or six, huh?
2: No, I'll just give two again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, so one is that there was a report titled Global Climate Action from Cities, Regions, and Businesses. And it was done by Data Driven Yale, the New Climate Institute, and the PBL, Environmental Assistant, Assessment Agency, 2018. And this report. Talks about how collective action on climate. This is a good wrap up to our last conversation. Collective action on climate is much more powerful than individual action or individual state and regional action. So we we say a lot. We talk a lot about how the administration, the current administration, is rolling back public policies, um, but it's okay because cities and states are taking action and corporates are taking action. Well. In the end, it turns out that it would be a lot better if all of it were happening. But they they have a very data-driven, as the re- report would lead you to believe, approach to this. And I just thought it was good that it came out. I think it's something we should all read. And, and at some point, we may want to even talk about it in more detail.
0: What's your second one?
2: Yeah, the second one is just how humbling it is to have people all over listen to this show from all different backgrounds, all different political persuasions, also. So I've heard from you know people on the far right, I've heard from senators i've heard u.s senators i've heard from all kinds of people one of the most impressive a, as an example was a young woman who came to me and she said i'm a fan of the show i'm also a white house fellow which is a very prestigious position to get and she said i'm trying to think about what i'm going to do next and this happens a lot where people come and chat and i love listening to young people and what do they want to do i I can't always lay a bunch of wisdom on them, but I ask them a lot of questions and just have a general interest in in meeting people. Well, it turns out this young woman is named Sharice Davids, and she just won the Democratic primary in Kansas's third district. She is a mixed martial arts professional, a Native American, and part of the LGBTQ community. And is just astounding and she's a fan of the show so um, I'm every day blown away by not just people from you know that there's so many people who listen but people who really care about what we talk about and am and, and happy to be some sort of small part of that
0: that's so cool It's a testament to the power of this medium too because we can have a successful you know, financially sustainable show that allows us to talk about a niche subject of great importance to people in the world and to influence people who are making decisions in the world. And, you know, ultimately hopefully make the world a a better place. I hate even hate using that term just because it's so Silicon Valley, (laughs) but you know, to, to truly like make an impact. And it it goes back to the power of the podcasting medium um, that allows us to do what, what we can do every week.
2: Yeah, it's great to be part of it.
0: So as I was reading the Losing Earth feature, I saw a couple tweets come through from a guy named Ed Hawkins. He's a climate scientist at the University of Reading. And Ed Hawkins is known in social media for putting together the coolest graphs about climate change that you can think of. And I use coolest with uh, air quotes because, you know, who really thinks that graphs that show extreme planetary warming are actually that cool, but they are cool and that they get people thinking about climate change differently. So his latest um, visualization project is climate barcodes. And he uses barcodes to illustrate how much warming we have seen above 20th century averages in regions all around the world, in, in specific countries and regions. And you can see the colors change in the barcode over time and the lines get fatter and fatter and fatter. So it's taking something that we know and recognize, a barcode, and applying uh, increases in temperature averages and it's just, you know, it's really stark. Like you can clearly see how quickly... Temperatures are changing uh, as you know the decades move on. He's also done another famous one that really broke through. gosh, this must have been last year. I can't remember when it was, but it was it's really cool. It's the climate spirals. And um, essentially, you can see this little wheel turning, and it's this little jagged line that's a that's a that's a wheel turning, and slowly you see the spiral emerge, and that's how much temperatures have risen over twentieth century averages over time. And you get, and the spiral turns redder and redder and redder, so it, it starts spinning wider and more out of control, and it's again very visceral. Um, you can. You know, It's not just a traditional heat map. It's not just some statistics about how far over the 20th century averages we are. It is a shape and movement that we know really well. And I just think it's extremely important to be able to break through the noise with that kind of visualization. So a kudos to Ed Hawkins. These have gotten a ton of play on social media, and I hope that he continues to do more.
2: Yeah, that stuff is amazing and can really help tell the story. I have always been a big fan of folks like Edward Tufte, who wrote the visual display of quantitative information and many other books, who really talk about how do you make something how do you how do you create something visually that displays data in a way that creates that visceral reaction?
0: Indeed. I think we can wrap it up there. So how does it feel being back in DC now, Catherine?
2: hot <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes indeed boiling here and even worse in my little recording booth here where i've been locked in for about an hour and a half okay well we missed you jigger happy birthday enjoy it wherever you are katherine glad to have you back um sorry you're back in dc but plenty to do this fall and i will catch you all With Catherine and Jigger next week. With Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating and review. And we'll see you next week.